All right. So, before anyone asks, yes, there will be Hebrew slides this morning. Um, and I know that in week one, I think it was Simon who mentioned that um, this particular chapter was written in Aramaic, um, but that's okay. My Hebrew stuff is not chapter specific, it's more generalised. So. Um, so Daniel chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel 6, but just keep your finger in place for now. Um, we'll come to it shortly. I'm not going to read the entire chapter as such but sort of jump through a little bit um, but I want to touch on a few a couple of things to kick off which have sort of been rattling around in my head for the last few weeks as I've been sort of preparing and particularly over the preceding five weeks of our journey through through the chapter um, the book of Daniel so um, one of the things I wanted to start with was ask if anybody knew what Daniel's name means I don't think it's been mentioned thus far. Anybody got any understanding of Daniel's name? No, sorry. Um, Daniel's name means God is my judge. God is my judge. Now, for those who were here a few weeks ago, you'll recognise similar slides, a bit of Hebrew, again, obviously, straight away, pretty much. Um, uh, Hebrew reads right to left um, and underneath the traditional Hebrew characters you've got the pictographic language or, or characters. Um, so on the, on the left hand side you'll see it references El, God, shortened version of Elohim. Um, and on the right the first couple of characters indicate uh, or the term is, I think, din. I think it's pronounced as din, as judge. Now, you'll see there it's highlighted as the door of life. The first two characters, those pictographic pictures, tell a story of um, the door leading to life. And in the ancient Hebrew concept of a judge is one who restores life. The goal of one that rules is to... Um, or judges is to bring a pleasant or righteous life to the people. So you could say that Daniel's name means God is my judge and he's the one who will lead me to a pleasant and righteous life. So just bear that in mind um, as we sort of go through. God is my judge. In our society, um, I think when it comes to names, Names are not much more than a label, something we use to point somebody out in a crowd. Um, but in the ancient Hebrew context, names were important. Names were, were just another word and they had a meaning that came with them. But in our society, I think, when, particularly if we're choosing our names for our kids, for example, we might pick a name that we like or avoid names associated with people that we don't like, for example. Um, so as a little bit of context to that if you think of David and often we refer to David as King David in our society we think of King as the title the, the title that, that he carries and David as the name but in the ancient Hebrew context King and David were both who he is 
There's no distinction between the two. Both of them would be recognised as being associated with that person of David. And as we know, God has many names in the Bible, and I think in week one, again, Simon mentioned that um, if you see L, um, again, the last couple of characters, in someone's name, it references God in, in that name, that name, the meaning associated with that name. So, and I, it's funny, you keep hearing, particularly in, in, even in this church, in recent times, more, more people starting to use Yahweh, Yeshua, Elohim, the, the, the traditional Hebrew names for, for God and, and for Jesus. So there you've got a couple of them, Elohim and, and Yahweh. If everyone, want, everyone wants to know about the um, pictographic meaning of Yahweh, you can come and see me later because it's quite interesting. But Elohim, El. Um, so the names that you'll see in the Bible, Daniel, Nathaniel, Elijah, Elisha, um, Elizabeth, all the, the, the names have, the, the meaning carried with those names carries with it some bearing and some context with some relationship with God. But the interesting thing is that, um, well, that I found as I was sort of researching and, and, and studying, um, is that as I understand it, and I don't have any Jewish friends to specifically ask, but as I understand it, the, the Jews even today will still avoid to say Elohim or Yahweh unless it's a specific um, a formal situation or setting. More traditionally, what they would actually do is they would replace the name of God with Hashem, which is literally translates to the name, the, the words, the name. So to avoid... Um, taking the name of the Lord, their God, in vain, they would replace his name with Hashem. So if you think about Genesis 1.1, um, in the beginning, the name created the heavens and the earth. Um, sounds a bit weird, but uh, again, it, it's, it's a way of, I guess, carrying reverence and respect to the name of God. Now, I'm getting into Daniel 6. Don't rush me. Um, it all comes together at the end. Um, Hashem. The, the first portion of Hashem, Ha, is the, and then Shem is name. And you can see it there. Again, the pictographic characters. You've got teeth for Shin and water for Mem. Destroy and chaos are the two ideas that carry with it. So in the word Shem, the word for usually we translate as name, the pictures tell a story of destroying the chaos or destroying the chaotic water. So how do you get name from that? So if you think about it, um, and if you think about chaotic water, you might get this picture of whitewater rapids or waves crashing on the beach or whatever it is, rough water. But if you destroy that, if you eliminate the chaos, what do you get? You get still water. So what do you get if you look into still water? If you look into still water, you see your reflection, you see you. So I really like this, like this image, destroying the chaos, looking into the mirror and revealing your true self. If you look at yourself in the, in the mirror in the morning, first thing in the morning, you're probably going, yeah, but it's, it's you, it's truth, it's you unfiltered. So it's, 
It's an image for name, Shem, destroying the chaos, revealing the truth. But the actual meaning of Shem is breath. So translates as name, carries this picture of destroying the chaos and revealing truth. But the actual root meaning for Shem is breath. Hebrews dealt with concrete pictures and images. They needed something tangible to relate to. So in the original Hebrew, the image of someone's breath directly carries this, uh, this concept of their character. And if you think about it, breath being as an internal thing and being externalised, exhaled, represented, the essence of a person, that's what they attribute as a somebody's name, carrying with them not just a label that you tag somebody with, John, Joe, whoever it is, but the character of the person being fully represented, their life, who they are, their inner being, the truth about them. So when we sing songs about worshipping or praising or blessing the name of the Lord our God, it's not just referring to the label that we tag God with, but it's his breath, it's his character, it's who he is, it's, it's his entire being that we are referencing. So Daniel, God is my judge. We could wrap up all the preceding five weeks and all of my waffle this morning and just replace it with um, the image that Daniel lived out his name. He lived the, the believing that God is his judge and he would not bow to anybody else. Daniel knew his place in this reality. He knew his God and he didn't back down. And if we're a follower of Christ, then we bear his name. We have a new name in Christ. Um, and if that's the case, then we all have to act like it. And that's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it is as simple as that. If, you, if we are part of his family, we need to remember whose family name we carry with us, whose character we should be revealing, whose breath we are breathing, and whose life we should have shined through us. Destroy the chaos, live out the character, the breath of Christ. In this current Instagram, Snapchat, internet, reality TV world that we live in, nothing is real. Everything is fabricated, everything is false, everything is manipulated. We find ways to distract ourselves from reality, from the truth. And Gary referred to this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4. We all need to break down the falsehoods I believe, in our, in our own lives and let the truth have its day. Remember whose family we belong to and let's, let's not bring dishonour to it. So, finally, Daniel 6. Um, like I said, don't rush me, we'll get here. So, Daniel 6, if you've got um, that open, we find in Daniel 6, as we have throughout the first few books, uh, first few chapters, more and more people are out to get Daniel. Um, he's lived through multiple different kings by this point. Um, he's outlasted them. In verse 3, we see that it says, um, Then this Daniel distinguished himself 
above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the entire, the whole realm. So we see that Daniel has distinguished himself and excelled to the point where, you know, much like Joseph, um, he's basically at the right hand. Um, but in verse 4, we see that the other advisors and governors were obviously looking for something to bring him down, but they couldn't find it. They had nothing that they could bring against him. No, no case, no law he'd broken, nothing, nothing defamatory they could align with him. So they, they couldn't bring him undone. It, but obviously, in the context and in the, in the way verse 4 is phrased, it, it, they were out to get him. They were out to look for something to bring him undone. So they couldn't find fault. So what they had to do was to invent a new law. Not one for doing things by halves. They decided the only way to do this was to create a new law and to bring him undone. So they created a law about something that they knew would trip him up. So how did they know this? They knew this because they had seen him practice it. So we'll see shortly um, that in verse um, 7 it says the advisers, they go to the king, they lie to him and it's quite clear that they were lying to him because they said all the advisers got together but obviously without Daniel and decided it would be a good idea to make this new law that no one should petition any God other than you for 30 days. So it's rather suspicious when you see they put a time stamp on it but they went to the king they said nobody can petition any other god than you again attributing their king as as their godlike figure um, but they knew that this would trip daniel up because they had seen him practice it and in verse 10 we see that daniel actually knew that this law had been passed. So it wasn't like he was unaware and went home and did what he normally did, which as we see, he went home, he opened the window and he started praying to God as he did three times a day. So it, in verse 10 we see that he was, it was clear that he actually knew that the law had been passed and yet it didn't stop him from continuing in his faithfulness to God. And he was probably, in this case, on the back of the law being passed, he probably went home to pray, what should I do? God, help me. Direct my path. Tell me what, what it is. How am I going to get out of this? So Daniel continued to display his character, his name, God as his judge. He put God first and that was it. In verse 11 we see the weasels, there's no better word for them, all gather outside and they all look through, I assume, the open window and they see Daniel praying and they say, yep, we've got him, let's go. So they all go home and they tattletale to the king. And in verse 14, we find once the king has heard this, he starts kicking himself because he knows he's been set up. Verse 14, 
And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. He knew that he had stuffed up. He knew it. And he knew what the punishment was going to be because he'd signed the order himself. But listen to this bit. He says, And the king set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He laboured till the going down of the sun to deliver him. There's one thing I want you to remember is that Daniel, by honouring God, honoured the king. By putting God first, he did no wrong against the king. By putting God first, he did no wrong against the king. Now, this is not always the case. I don't know about you, but I'm a selfish idiot a lot of the time. But if you take your eyes off God, it's very easy to fail. But in this case, we can see that Daniel, by his faithfulness to God and showing respect and honour to the king, he had built trust and faith and respect from the king to this foreigner such that he would find, look for any way to actually get him out of the predicament that he was actually in. But the king had no alternative. He had to comply with the law that he himself had actually signed. So Daniel was cast into the den of lions. Now, I find this next comparison really, really interesting. The king was sleepless, he fasted, and he didn't want to listen to music. In verse 18, it references that. He was panicking, he, he was stressed. And although it's not recorded, I vouch that Daniel went into the lion's den in a state of absolute peace. So, we've got the king freaking out and we've got Daniel now in the lion's den. When we heard in uh, chapter 3 uh, a few weeks ago, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego all acknowledged before they were going to be thrown into the furnace, they said, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we do not serve your gods. They were at peace. They had no qualms or concerns about what, where their life was going to go, where their fate was going to, going to go. They knew that God could and would deliver them from the king, but even if it wasn't delivered from the furnace... It made no difference to them. God was their judge. So we have this contrast. We've got the unbelieving king was having a panic attack in his, in his palace. Couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, couldn't stop worrying. And we've got Daniel in the lion's den, who I would argue is probably sleeping like a baby. Trust in God and be at peace. Let his breath, his name, his character fill you and give you peace. Let God destroy the chaos in your life. So in the morning, the king raced out to check on Daniel, obviously hoping for the best. He calls out to him and receives a reply in verse 20. And in retribution for being tricked, we find in verse 24 that the king kills all of the, uh, all of the accusers, including their families. He wasn't the best of blokes, this king, really. Um, but he knew that he'd been tricked and he didn't appreciate that, obviously. 
Now, the other big point I want to make in the context of our Daniel studies of living against the flow, Daniel showed the king respect and honour. I think it's a really significant point of this particular chapter. So we find in verse 21 and 22, when the king was calling out to Daniel, he'd gone there first thing in the morning, and he calls out, he said, and Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. So two things. He says, king live, for, king live forever, respecting the king's position and authority. And I have done no wrong before you. In Hebrew, even though, again, this chapter is not in Hebrew, but if you were to look at this sort of phrase in a Hebrew raw translation context, it would be something along the lines of, in my service to you, O king, I have not committed a crime in front of you, or I have not sought to overthrow you. So why would he say this to the king? Because he'd obviously broken a law. He knew that. He went into the situation knowing that. He'd broken a law, even though it was ridiculous. The punishment itself was not ridiculous, was far from it. But like I said before, by putting God first, he did no wrong against the king. Daniel would be faithful to his name. God is my judge. He didn't need approval from men. He didn't need approval from the king. He sought continual approval from the king of kings. He put God first, absolutely, but he would respect the authority above him and would not dishonour his king. He did not think of himself above others and he knew his place and he showed people respect. In Romans 12:18, it says, If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And I think this is the way Daniel lived his life with humility and respect. He wasn't out for himself. He knew his place. And I think it's been mentioned in week one that these people had hundreds of gods, a god for everything. And yet we had this image of the king freaking out, not, not at peace at all because he had none of his gods he could turn to to give him that peace. Daniel knew exactly who to turn to. And he did so three times a day. But at no point was he proud or disrespectful. In each chapter of Daniel, we've got an amazing God event, amazing, miraculous signs and wonders. And every single one of those was a chance for the Babylonians to actually turn to God and turn away from their hundreds of gods and recognise that they were all useless. Daniel is a book that shows that God cares for his people in darkness and in hardship and his light shines bright in those times. And as Paul said at the start, we're not alone. So, what is your name? Whose breath is actually in you? And whose family are you a member of? And who is your judge? Thank you.